Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedicase. I'm Joel Sedicase, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. What I'm going to share with you now is my script from a talk that I gave recently at a meeting of crew of the Illinois Institute of Technology down on the south side of Chicago. My talk was entitled, Why Science Needs Jesus. And I just want to say up front that I am not a scientist, but I am something of a theologian and philosopher and someone who deals with the various aspects, the epistemological aspects, meaning the the aspects having to do with knowledge of science and other ways of thinking, whether it be reason, intuition, things like that. And so I don't put myself forward as a scientist, but I do know some scientists. I've interviewed a few of them on this podcast and um, at least one scientist and, and others who are interested in science, like Dan Ray. I interviewed Dr. Brian Thomas, and I hope to do many more science-themed episodes. But my point in saying this is to establish the expectation up front that while I'm not going to be speaking as a scientist, I am going to be speaking about scientists from a theological and philosophical perspective. And my goal here is to help you think about the preconditions for science and the assumptions that we have to bring to our scientific inquiry. And what we're going to see is that far from being in conflict with Christian faith, scientific inquiry actually supports Christian faith and actually requires Christian faith in order to be meaningful. And if that sounds surprising or controversial to you, just listen in, and I'm sure it'll make sense by the time we're done. Now, very quickly, I also want to give a quick plug for my regular uh, email update that I sent out. It is called the Think Update, and I send it out once or twice a month. And basically what I do is I send out tips and tools to help you explain, share, and defend your faith. It's very similar to the Think Podcast, but it's curated content. Most of it is from various aspects or um, areas of the Think Institute, but I also try to share with you content that I curate from my own studies or something that was helpful to me, whether it's a book I was reading or a video I watched or another podcast. I'm all about sharing the wealth. And so you can get that by logging on to our website, thethink.institute, and there's a link right at the top. You can subscribe right there. And I hope that you join the uh, scores of other folks who have signed up for the Think Think Update and have found it useful. Um, It's all about helping you to explain, share, and defend your faith. So that is what I'm hoping that this talk will also do. And so without any further ado, let's get into it. Why does science require Jesus? Why does science need Jesus? Let me start off with a reading by a man you might have heard of. His name is Albert Einstein. The scientist's religious feeling takes the form of a rapturous amazement at the harmony of natural law, which reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it, all the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is utterly insignificant reflection. This feeling is the guiding principle of his life and work insofar as he succeeds in keeping himself from the shackles of selfish desire. It is beyond question, closely akin to that which has possessed the religious geniuses of all ages. 
So here's Einstein saying that the scientist, as he ponders and explores and inquires into the natural world, the cosmos, he is taken with a religious feeling at the awe and wonder of it all. But now let me read a quote from Richard Dawkins, which really uh, falls on the opposite end of the spectrum. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Again, that's Richard Dawkins, who is a biologist and um, atheist popularizer. So who's right? Now, neither of the men that I just read was a follower of Jesus. Both are scientists, and yet they have dramatically different views of the world. Einstein saw intelligence behind the world, whereas Dawkins saw only blind, pitiless indifference. So the question naturally arises, is belief in God a good move for the scientifically inclined? Or another way to say this is, because I'm a Christian and I want to go deeper, I might want to ask this question. Is my belief in Jesus unscientific? See, I don't believe in just a God or theism, broadly speaking. I believe specifically in Jesus. And so is belief in Jesus a good move for the scientifically inclined? For the purposes of this episode, I'm going to be contrasting two systems of thought, biblical Christianity and atheism. And for the purposes of this talk, I'll define biblical Christianity as a set of three beliefs. Belief in the triune God of Scripture, belief that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, and belief that the Bible is the Word of God and is therefore true. For atheism, I'm going to encompass in that definition all worldviews that deny the principal truths that I just outlined, and that would include secular humanism, materialism, naturalism, agnosticism, anti-theism, and scientism, as well as various forms of skepticism and other non-theistic worldviews. So here's the big idea for this episode. I think this is what God has for us. Science needs Jesus. And I want to talk about why science needs Jesus. And we're going to discover how science needs Jesus by looking at three realities. The reality of immaterial laws, the reality of the material world, and the reality of the human mind. So to start with, we're going to look at the, the immaterial laws of logic and mathematics. Now, first, in order to even begin to do scientific inquiry, we must believe something very important. Yes, that's right. Science actually begins with a belief. Now, that belief is this. There are laws that govern the universe. We all know this, but perhaps students of science and technology are more keyed into it than many others. There are principles that are so consistent we can safely call them laws. For example, take the laws of logic. These are the law of identity, non-contradiction, and excluded middle. The, uh, the law of identity says that A is A. A thing is itself. A proposition says what it says and does not say its negation. Actually, the fact that it doesn't say its negation is the second law of logic, which is the law of non-contradiction, which says A does not equal not A. And then the law of excluded middle says A or not A, and there is nothing in between. So a statement is either true or false, and, and it is not uh, something in between. These are so basic that to deny them is impossible. Try it. 
the law of non-contradiction isn't true. All right, well then, in that case, the law of non-contradiction is true because there's no problem with that. See, a contradiction can be true. So to deny the law of non-contradiction, you are left with absurdity. Another example of invisible laws that govern the universe, immaterial laws rather, that govern the universe would be the laws of mathematics. This deals with numbers, the relationships between numbers, which we call formulae. And by this, I'm not talking about the stuff that's being counted, the material things. If I were counting beans, I'm not talking about the beans. I'm talking about the numbers that are used to count those beans. The laws that govern the world, therefore, are irrefutable, and we take them for granted. One plus one is two. We, we just simply know this. It's non-controversial. But these laws have other attributes as well. well. What are those other attributes? Well, first of all, we said that they are immaterial. That means that they're not made of matter. They're non-physical. You can't hand me a bucket of non-contradiction. You can't pass a bowl of seven at the dinner table. But they're also invariant. They're unchangeable. They don't change. We don't wonder whether 2 plus 2 will be 4 today and 12 tomorrow. They're also universal. 2 plus 2 is true everywhere. It's true in every corner of the universe. They apply to everyone at all times everywhere. The law of excluded middle is, is true for everybody and always has been. A statement is either true or false. And if you want to say, well, some statements are, are partly true and partly false, what you're saying is this component of the proposition is true, whereas that component is false. If you say, well, this man is bald, is that true or false? Well, if he has hair on the sides of his heads, then it's true that he has hair on the sides of his heads and false that he has hair on the top of his head. Do you see the statement is true or false? You just might have to break it down into substatements. So we, we know these laws are true. They don't change. They are universal. But we also know them because they are knowable. It isn't that these laws are operating somewhere out in the background in space, unbeknownst to us. No, they're capable of being known. They are revealed to us from the, the universe, the way the universe works. And we know them. In fact, we presuppose them. Now, which system of thought, biblical Christianity or unbelief, accounts for these immaterial laws? First, let's take a look at unbelief or atheism. And remember, that encompasses all the different worldviews that I talked about earlier. A worldview is the set of presuppositions through which a person sees the world. And so any worldview that can account for the laws governing the world must have as its basis a prime reality that grounds those laws that is immaterial, invariant, universal, and knowable. Atheism believes only in matter and energy. Most forms of atheism are forms of materialism, but even if they believe in something that is non-physical, you know, maybe various forms of energy, things like that, um, whatever it believes in is changeable. But these laws are not made of matter because matter is always changing. And uh, these laws, by definition, are not material laws. Whereas matter changes, these immaterial laws are invariant and unchanging. So, so far, atheism has two strikes against it. The laws are not made of matter, and the laws are uh, invariant, unchanging. Matter consists of particles, waves, strings, and what have you, but these laws are undivided. They are universal. So, whereas matter is divisible, these laws are undivided. They are universal. They're true everywhere, completely undivided. They're not broken up into parts in the way that matter is. Matter is knowable, and these laws are knowable, so there's a little glimmer of hope for atheism here, but since our minds are ultimately reducible to our brains, which are really just collocations of proteins and 
and uh, molecules and atoms. Our thought is therefore nothing more than the product of chemical, physical, and material processes and reactions. And why would we trust that? So ultimately, if these laws did exist somehow in an atheistic universe, we would not ever be able to think that we could rightly say that we knew them because there's nothing in our brains that would be aimed at that kind of knowledge. Now, let's take biblical Christianity. Well, in biblical Christianity, there is a source of knowledge. There's a source of reality. There's a prime reality that is immaterial, unchanging, universal, and knowable. Do you know who it is? It's God. God is that prime reality. And so in biblical Christianity, there is a basis for believing in the laws of logic, the laws of mathematics, which have all these different characteristics. Now, even the unbeliever Einstein, Einstein was not a Christian, but even he could see that the laws governing the cosmos pointed us to a superhuman intelligence. Uh, even Albert Einstein, again, who was not a Christian, said, we see the universe marvelously arranged and obeying certain laws, but only dimly understand these laws. Our limited minds grasp the mysterious, mysterious force that moves the constellations. Now, um, Christian theologian and apologist Vern Poitras has said that the laws that govern the universe are actually the speech of God. And our apprehension of those laws, our interpretations of those laws, are our attempts to understand God's speech. And yet, of course, we do so imperfectly. And one of the men who did that imperfectly and yet was absolutely brilliant, one of the one of the uh, modern forebears, or the uh, the pre-modern forebears of our modern scientists was Galileo Galilei. And here's what he said. The laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics. Now, the Bible gives a basis for these laws that are so necessary to science, whereas atheism does not and cannot. So if you begin with the God of the Bible, you get math and logic. If you begin without the God of the Bible, you have no reason for expecting to find these things in nature and no way to account for them. Instead, you must steal from the biblical system of thought to make sense of the world. And again, I just want to drive this point home. These laws have to be knowable, but on atheism, given atheism, there is no reason to think that your material mind could know a unchanging, universal, uh, immaterial law of the universe. There's just no, no way of thinking that a, uh, a uh, machine made up of, even if it's highly evolved, made up of proteins and, and chemicals only with no transcendent mind behind it could know an immaterial law. There's no reason to think that. So the Bible gives a basis for these laws and a basis for our knowing them, but atheism does not. And therefore, insofar as atheists use math, they are unwittingly borrowing against, or you could even say stealing from, the biblical system of thought in order to make sense of the world. But see, here's the thing. Everyone has to make sense of the world. And so in order to do, in order to do so, you have to steal from a worldview that is coherent and actually makes sense of these laws. But that's the biblical worldview. And so in, or, in order to make sense of the world, you have to steal from the biblical worldview. Now, the cornerstone of the biblical system is Jesus Christ himself. Here's how it all ties together to Jesus. Jesus is the God-man, bridging the immaterial and the material. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Lord of all, and he is knowable. In fact, he came so that we could know God. So there you have it. Jesus is immaterial. He's actually the bridge between the material and the immaterial because he's God and man. He's invariant. He is the 
universal Lord of all, and he's knowable. So science needs these laws, and these laws need Jesus. Therefore, science needs Jesus. Now, the next thing I want to look at, another one of these immaterial laws, is the, um, the immaterial law that is known as uniformity in nature. Now, the question of uniformity in nature goes like this. Why should we think that the future will be like the past? And why should we think that unobserved cases will be similar to observed cases? Why should we think that things that we haven't seen, that are similar to things that we have seen, will act in the same way or actually be similar to things that we have seen? Just because we've done 10 experiments or 100 or 1,000, why should we think that the next 10 or 100 or 1,000 will be similar to the ones that we have observed, that they will yield similar results? And yet, you see, science absolutely requires that the future will be like the past. It requires that we can draw inferences from a limited uh, sample set about the way things are as a whole. And this process is called induction. Science needs induction. Now, if we look at atheism or unbelief, there is no God holding the universe together. So we can only trust in our very, very, very limited experience. And so for the atheist who says, well, we, we um, believe that, that we can make conclusions based on our limited sample set about the whole, that's really begging the question. And this is a logical fallacy. Because if you say, well, this is what our experience teaches us, the very question that we're trying to answer here is, why should we trust our experience with our limited sample set? So appealing to our experience, you know, this is the way it's always been, this is how we've experienced it, that is begging the question. That's a logical fallacy. So that's a really bad answer. So this is where you'd want to insert a meme of Spongebob doing the mocking face with the capital and lowercase letters uh, saying, the future has always been like the past, okay? Because saying that the future has always been like the past is just another way of saying the past futures have been like past pasts. But that's what we're trying to figure out is why should we think that future futures will be like past pasts or past futures? You can't just say that's the way it's always been. That's begging the question. This just assumes the conclusion. We're not asking what's happened in the past. We're asking what will happen in the future. And so without the divine agent holding all things together and guiding them according to his good, pleasing, and perfect will, there is no reason to just assume the uniformity in nature. And there is most definitely no way to account for it because the fact is uniformity in nature does obtain. It is a real thing. And yet atheism can't explain it. And to just say, well, that's the way it is, that's not a good argument. That'd be like me saying, well, God just is. You just have to deal with it. I got, I got no proof. In fact, it goes against everything that the universe teaches us. Now, that's what atheists may accuse us of saying, but that's not what we're saying. And it's not a good argument. So if it's not a good argument for Christians, it's not a good argument for atheists. So let's step into the biblical worldview now for the sake of argument and see how it fares. The Bible presents God as the one who, quote, worketh all things according to the counsel of his will, according to Ephesians 1.11, Please excuse the King James English. And so, because of this, we can make sense of the, uh, of the reality of induction. Why is the future like the past? Because God was God in the past, and God will be God in the future. And God is working everything out the way he wants. And one of the things that he wants is for human beings to live in a world in which discovery is possible, in which scientific inquiry is possible. And that would not be the case in a world without induction. 
See, all this is revealed in the Bible. And yet the very same Bible also reveals that it is by Jesus Christ that God holds the world together and makes things happen the way he wants. In him, all things consist, according to Colossians 1.17. So Jesus Christ is the ontological glue that keeps the cosmos from breaking apart and turning to dust, Thanos style. Jesus, who holds the cosmos together, is the same one who earned the right to do so by dying on the cross and conquering death. The Bible says that in doing this, he perfectly obeyed his father and he became heir of the world, according to Hebrews 1-2. That means that he possesses ownership and authority, in fact, all authority in the heavens and on the earth, according to Matthew 28-18 in Christ's own words. So here's the point. The problem of induction is solved only by starting with scripture and its teaching about God. But starting there will also lead you inevitably to the good news about Jesus, that he is both Lord and Savior. So science needs induction and induction needs Jesus. So science needs Jesus. Now let's take a look at the human mind. Did you ever stop to think about how incredible it is that you can stop to think? Your mind is capable of incredible thinking and creativity and design and memory and emotion. Your mind is amazing. Moreover, your mind can think logically. As a matter of fact, it must think logically. It must think mathematically in order to survive. You have to be able to add one plus two. If you're taking pills, you need to know if you've just taken one pill or two pills or three pills, your very life could depend on it. Your mind can also think empirically and scientifically. Your mind is capable of seeking the truth by gathering in data through your senses, your eyes, your ears, your sense of touch, and synthesizing it to come to true conclusions about the world. This is what science does. And so there is a correspondence between your mind and the world and the invisible laws of math and logic, the other invisible laws that that govern the world. Now, which system of thoughts accounts for this reality? Again, let's look at atheism first. While there are two glaring problems for the atheist position, the first one has to do with evolution. And I was hinting at this before. If naturalism is true, then the strongest explanation for how humans came about is evolution by natural selection, either as espoused by Charles Darwin or some other similar version of evolution. Now, as noted atheistic scientist Richard Dawkins, whom I quoted earlier, has said, Charles Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. However, if evolution by natural selection was an unguided, undesigned process, then humans are essentially nothing more than self-aware apes. And this leads to the problem of reliability of any belief which Homo sapiens, an evolved ape, may possess. Alvin Plantinga has developed the following argument, and this is called his Evolutionary Argument Against Naturalism, or E-A-A-N. If evolution by natural selection, E, and naturalism, N, are both true, then person S has a defeater for belief. If S has a defeater for belief, then the reliability of S's cognitive faculties is inscrutable. In other words, unknowable, completely unknowable. This is called the inscrutability thesis, and S has a defeater for all his beliefs, all all her beliefs. In other words, he or she has a reason to doubt, to seriously doubt any one of his or her conclusions. 
In other words, if God were not real, then we would have no reason to think that our brains, which are not designed by God in this scenario, are in any way aimed at truth. So we can't trust any of our conclusions, and this includes the conclusion that God does not exist. So you see, if atheism is true and evolution is true, then we have no reason to believe that God does not exist. Now, Charles Darwin himself expressed this horrid doubt, as he put it, when he said this, But then with me there is the horrid doubt then, but then with me the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? While the other problem has to do simply with the limited nature of the human mind, we don't know everything that there is to know. That means that for every proposition we believe to be true, there could be a fact out there in the universe somewhere that contradicts that proposition. We can never be sure. But that means that we can never be sure about anything that we claim to know because two contradictory propositions cannot both be true. And there could be a contradictory proposition out there somewhere that contradicts each and every one of the propositions we believe to be true. We could never be sure about anything that we think that we know, which means we could never have certain knowledge at all. And you might say, well, that's fine. I just don't have certain knowledge. In fact, I'm certain that I don't have any certain knowledge, which of course begs the question, are you certain about that? Well, of course, if you can be certain about even one thing, well, that means that we must actually know certain things for certain. But how is that possible since we don't have all knowledge? Well, the only other way to have any certain knowledge is to have it revealed to you by someone who does know everything. In other words, if you have knowledge from God, then you can have certain knowledge. Now, this brings us to, this brings us to the biblical worldview. In the biblical worldview, God designed our minds. That's according to Genesis 1.27. We're made in God's image. And God wants us to use our minds to do science. Proverbs 25.2 says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it is the glory of a king to search out a matter. Galileo said, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with senses, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. See, God has designed us to gain truth from the world using our minds. And God has designed the world in such a way that it points to him not only points to scientific truth, but it points to theological truth as well. Psalm 111 verse 2 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in Him. So there's a correspondence and a correlation between scientific inquiry, done right, and theological enjoyment. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And Isaac Newton says, In the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. What a great quote. Now, God is the God of science, and he designed our minds for scientific inquiry. The same God who made us gave us the Bible. And the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 3, that it was through Jesus that God created everything, including us. So when Jesus speaks, he speaks as an author, meaning he has authority. When he makes a command, we need to listen. Jesus speaks as an authority. And he has commanded us 
to repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 1 verse 15. There is no way around it. Science requires minds that are designed by God. And yet, the same Bible that tells us this also tells us that man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 We don't interpret the world rightly because of our sin. Our sin has us trapped, but only Jesus can set us free. When a sinner repents, turns from sin, and receives Jesus as Savior and Lord, he is set free to interpret the world rightly. The Bible says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, Colossians 2.3. So then, science needs properly functioning minds, and properly functioning minds need Jesus. Let's look at a few objections that might be floating about in your God-designed mind right now. First objection, why are so many scientists atheists if belief in God is so scientific? Well, science didn't start out that way. You see, science was actually designed originally, well, designed, it was discovered, invented, uh, pioneered by Christians. One of those Christians was a man named Johannes Kepler, and he says this, God, like a human architect, approached the founding of the world according to order and rule and measured everything in such a manner that one might think not, one might think not, Art took nature for an example, but God himself, in the course of his creation, took the art of man as an example. So Kepler, who was a pioneer astronomer and mathematician who discovered the three laws of planetary motion, recognized that in his astronomy, he saw God's handiwork. And actually, God was like an artist. His art is displayed not on a canvas of um, cloth, but on the canvas of the very heavens themselves. And so... While science was pioneered by Christians, it has been taken over, largely, by non-believers, by materialists. And yet, one author says, the materialist philosophy that seems to underlie so much of scientific discourse today, in contrast to the belief of the early scientists, is like foreign invaders intent on displacing the original occupants of a land. So you've got atheists who have snuck in, crept in to the scientific field, and are taking it over. But they're doing so in the same way that an invader would take over a land that was originally developed and cultivated by someone else. In this case, by believers. Again, this takes us back to Romans 1, where men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And those with more truth have more truth to suppress and must work all the harder to suppress that truth, which is one of my theories about why there are so many atheists in the scientific fields. They have to try uh, harder than the average person, you know, who drives a truck to suppress the truth of God. Even though the truth of God is all around us, the more you investigate God's creation, the harder you have to work. And so that that pushes a lot of people from merely agnosticism or uh, another belief system all the way straight to atheism. Now, next objection. Isn't faith belief in the absence of evidence? Well, no. While believing strongly without evidence is considered a mark of madness or stupidity in any other areas of our lives, God, a faith in God still holds immense prestige in our society. Now, this is a quote from an atheist, lest you think this is my opinion. Religion is the one area of our discourse where it is considered noble to, pre to pretend to be certain about things no human being could possibly be certain about. It is telling that this aura of nobility extends only to those faiths that still have many subscribers. Anyone caught worshiping Poseidon, even at sea, 
will be thought insane. Now, if you don't know who said that, that was Sam Harris, um, noted atheist and uh, member of the intellectual dark web. Listen, I like a lot of the things that Sam Harris says, but not this, because evidence itself presupposes God. Faith in God is not contrary to the evidence. Not only that, but Sam Harris. Oh, listen, I know I just said evidence presupposes God. The reason for that is because everything that we've been talking about, about science and what science requires, all requires faith in God. Okay, evidence requires induction and uniformity in nature and logic and oftentimes mathematics. And hopefully we've seen by now that these things all presuppose belief in God and are in much better comportment with the biblical worldview, the Christian worldview, than the atheistic, unbelieving worldview that Sam Harris um, holds to. Not only that, but by lumping all religions together, Sam Harris only muddies the water. It would be like lumping astrology and astronomy together or chemistry with alchemy. Christians have evidence, lots of and lots of evidence. Go back and listen to my interview with Jay Warner Wallace if you want some amazing evidence. But the very concept of evidence presupposes immaterial laws, uniformity in nature, and the correspondence of the human mind to both. These comport with Christianity, but not with Harris's atheism. Final objection. Hasn't history shown that the church is actually the enemy of faith? Well, first of all, what if that had been the case? So what? For an atheist, that shouldn't be a problem because all you have is church protoplasm and, and, uh, and uh, collocations of molecules and proteins bumping up against scientific collocations of molecules and protoplasm. And, and uh, really, you've just, you know, uh, as uh, Jeff Durbin likes to say, in this case, you'd have the church fizzing religiously and science fizzing scientifically. And so what? You know, it's really what this boils down to is an argument that the church is is hypocritical. But so what? Why is hypocrisy a problem given atheism? Condemnation of hypocrisy, well, that's a biblical teaching. Jesus condemned hypocrisy. But why would an atheist condemn hypocrisy? That would assume moral universal laws. See, hypocrisy is a problem because God is consistent and faithful and not hypocritical, but there is no problem with hypocrisy on atheism. Or perhaps it's an argument towards pragmatism. You know, we could say, well, if religion takes over, then anti-science sentiment will win out. But, uh, you know, they could say religion doesn't create a propitious environment for science. But ask yourself, what is more propitious for scientific inquiry? A, a belief that the world is random, that Natural and mathematical laws are mental constructs only, in other words, human constructs only, and that your mind is nothing more than the collocation of molecules and proteins splashing around between your ears, and that thought is merely secreted by your brain in the same way that your gallbladder secretes bile. Or, B, a worldview that says that the faithful and good God created the world according to definite laws rooted in his nature in such a way that we, being made in his image, would be able to use our senses, our reason, our intuition in order to discover the truth. It should be clear that the latter and not the former provides a more propitious environment for science. Now, the father of modern science, Isaac Newton, said this, 
A heavenly master governs all the world as sovereign of the universe. We are astonished at him by reason of his perfection. We honor him and fall down before him because of his unlimited power. From blind physical necessity, which is always and everywhere the same, no variety adhering to time and place could evolve. And all variety of created objects which represent order and life in the universe could happen only by the willful reasoning of its original creator, whom I call the Lord God. So here you've got Isaac Newton refuting evolution by blind natural selection uh, hundreds of years before Charles Darwin and uh, refuting atheism as well. This is the foundation of science. If you're a Christian, don't let anyone convince you that science is necessarily atheistic, naturalistic, materialistic. It's not. Now, the big case that everyone likes to trot out here is the Roman Church versus Galileo. And they say that the Roman Catholic Church condemned Galileo because of his view, his uh, heliocentric view of the solar system, and the Catholic Church was anti-scientific, and therefore that they somehow want to tie that to say, well, therefore, you know, that must mean that biblical Christianity is unscientific. But that's not the case. See, biblical Christianity is not identical to Roman Catholicism. And actually, as a matter of fact, Roman Catholicism at this time, the magisterium, believed in the Aristotelian model of the cosmos in which the earth was the center. This was not biblical. It is not taught in scripture. And Galileo, who was a Christian, was actually taking a more biblical position because the Bible supports scientific inquiry and astro uh, astronomy and astrophysics. So we've seen that there are three realities that require science to be rooted in the biblical worldview and that the heart of the biblical worldview is the Lord Jesus. In other words, we've seen that science needs Jesus. And now we know why science needs Jesus. If you know Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is great news for you. You are free to pursue scientific inquiry and invention, uncovering the treasures of the cosmos through technology, all for the glory of Christ. The warning would come here. Remember who the Lord is. Remember that he is Lord both over science and over you. And so as you do your scientific inquiry, do it for his glory, with his peace and with his joy. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to tell you this. The same Bible that proves the basis for science, that provides the basis for science, also tells us of a problem. That problem is expounded for us in Romans 6.23, which says that the wages of sin is death. And a couple chapters earlier, the Apostle Paul, who wrote that, said that all have sinned. And what that means, my friends, is that you and I have earned God's wrath, punishment, and hell. We call this death. But the provision of God is the free gift that God gives called eternal life. Life with God forever. First in heaven and then in a new earth. Forever. New body. New life. Life that lasts forever. And the person that can bring this to you, the person that can bring you from death to life is Jesus Christ. Ask yourself if this makes sense and if this is a decision that you'd like to make. And if so, then even right now, as you listen to this podcast, you can turn from your sin, your sin of denying God, both in your science and in your life and in your heart. Turn, repent, and believe in Jesus Christ. According to the Bible, if you do that, you will be saved. Not because of something that you did, but because of something Jesus did. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and me. He was buried and God raised him back to life. And Jesus has all authority 
and has the authority to save and forgive once and for all anyone who trusts in him. The same science, or the same Jesus that is so needed by science is also desperately needed by you and me. I hope you find new life, eternal life in him. Well, thanks for listening to the Think Podcast. Um, I've really enjoyed this. And please connect with the Think Institute by going to thethink.institute. While you're there, you can sign up for my regular emails called the Think Update. And if you really enjoyed this content, or even if you only kind of enjoyed this content, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And this really, really helps us to um, get the word out about this podcast. So go ahead and do that. And um, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send someone a book. I just, uh, I just decided this. I'm going to send someone a book, someone who has written a review for us. Uh, so if that's you, if you've written a review, you're automatically entered into the, into the drawing. But what I want to do is I want to send somebody a book um, from Lexham Press, uh, a good book. I'll give you more details as we go, but I want to send someone a book for reviewing this podcast. So if you haven't done so yet, Go ahead, leave us a five-star review. It's got to be a five-star review. You've got to have a a, a rating in there, a review in there. So write us a short little blurb, but you can say this podcast is great. I don't care what you say. But, but, you know, uh, one person compared us to Joe Rogan. Somebody else said this is the podcast that makes makes Christians think. Um, I love it. I'll take it, whatever it is. But leave me a review, and uh, I'll send one of you guys a book. All right? Okay. That's all I have for you. This is not goodbye. It's just a little stop along the way of your spiritual journey. I do hope that you have the opportunity to put what you just heard into practice. And until next time, I hope it makes you think.